Well, I don't know really whoever came up with calling it spring break anyway. I think it has to be one of the biggest misnomers, misnames to give to a piece of calendar real estate. The word word break, I think, sometimes only applies to a, a certain demographic in this equation, usually those who are kind of the non-voters and non-drivers among us. And in order for a break to occur for them, usually a non-break has to occur for somebody else. But whether you have just come back from spring break, or like Aaron said a minute ago, you're about ready to go back on spring break, or you're ready to take a spring break, I hope we can all be refreshed this morning by the gospel of Jesus, found for us in Paul's letter to the Philippians. That's where we'll be this morning, Philippians chapter 3, the first 16 verses. Young Christians, young theologians, let's go ahead and start with you. I've got two questions for you to think about this morning. First question is this, what did we lose in the Garden of Eden? What did we lose in the Garden? What loss did we suffer? What did Adam and Eve lose for all of us when they ate from the forbidden fruit? And the second question is this, how has God given back to us what we've lost? How has God restored to us what we've lost? This is the good news of our union with Jesus, a union which has brought us every blessing we have enjoyed and will enjoy And God's great salvation for His people. And it's found in Paul's letter to the Philippian church, chapter 3. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and it is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision. We worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law a Pharisee, as to zeal a persecutor of the church, As to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection, and may share in His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead." Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me His own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, 
forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Father in heaven, we come again this morning to your word, confessing and recognizing at the outset, right here at the front end, that it's your word, not ours breathed out by your Spirit. And your Spirit is the only one who knows your heart and your mind. And by your grace to us, you have revealed your will for us. Your will for us in your gospel through your word. And we thank you for that. And at the same time, ask you that by your Spirit, you would open our hearts and minds to understand it to renew us, to refresh us through it. And we come expectantly knowing that you will do these things and knowing that you'll do them because you promised to and knowing that you'll do them for your glory and for our greatest blessing, our greatest good. We ask these things in Jesus' name and by the Spirit. Amen. Well, I drove past it for years. More than four years, actually, and never really took notice until just recently. And if you know me well, that won't come as a great surprise. I'm often a lot more oblivious to my surroundings than most. But every morning on the way, and then every afternoon on the way back from seminary, for four years I would drive by Skillman Church of Christ and the beautiful park just to the south of it. And this past week, I was driving past it again, and I happened to see a huge tree spread out near the ground. It's it's, it's large branches going every direction, but split at the base, spread out like a, a dead insect having been pinned down by an entomologist. And it's been like that for years. Huge, dead branches, any one of them fully in its right to claim to be the trunk of the tree, spreading out like spider legs, reaching 20 feet or more in all these different directions. And I thought about the image of that tree as I drove home. And I thought to myself, well, it's an honest tree. Declaring that it's broken at the base declaring that it's broken from the start. It's broken from the feet up. It's a perfect admission of depravity. Not trying to hide the fact that it exists in a broken and fallen world. Not trying to hide what's true of all of us, that we have suffered great loss. Just as Jim read for us a minute ago from Genesis chapter 3, Neither our parents in the garden nor we, their children, are typically as honest as this tree. But we lost more than a perfect relationship with a perfect creation, although we certainly lost that too. For us, righteousness was lost. Our righteous standing before God was lost at the same time as our unity with God 
was lost at the tree in the garden. And we showed our loss of both righteousness and unity with God immediately by grabbing frantically around ourselves to try and prove to ourselves that we really hadn't lost anything. We'd only gained. After all, we reasoned, I mean, we used to be naked. But now we've got these new clothes, fashionable and biodegradable. We used to be chained to faith, to having to believe whatever God told us, but but now our minds have been set free to find out for ourselves, to know and feel and experience and reason and discover the real truth behind the curtain. I mean, we used to be shut up in a garden, but now we've been set free to build towers and cities for our own glory. We used to be weighed down by an anchor to one set of covenant relationships with other human beings. But but now we're free. We're free to define what a relationship is supposed to feel like and look like for ourselves. To make sure that no matter what else, those relationships are helping us in our dreams, our vision of what life is supposed to look like for us. Loss from eating from the tree? Loss? No, no. We've only gained. And this is the story that we've been telling ourselves ever since. But the Apostle Paul has been redeemed. His eyes have been opened by the Spirit. And he's been given eyes to see true reality for what it really is. And he isn't buying that story. Not only does he know the unimaginable loss of our former union with God, which took place in the garden, he also knows of our loss of righteousness as well. And the Spirit's insight given to Paul goes even deeper than this. Paul knows all the places in which we as Christians are tempted to look to replace our loss, to look for gain. And he writes from a jail cell in Rome to the believers in Philippi, and he says to them, Listen, listen to me. If it is at all possible to regain what we lost in the garden apart from God's grace given to us, trust me, believe me, I would have done it. But you can't. Instead, you have to learn to count everything you think is an asset as a loss. Everything you wear as a badge of honor, as a spiritual embarrassment. Everything you look to as a source of self-congratulation to be your greatest obstacles to true gain instead. Because we only will regain what we lost in the garden through union to a justifying Savior and to a sanctifying Savior and finally with a glorified Savior. It's generally agreed upon that the theological enemies of Paul in Philippians 3 are made up of the usual suspects of Judaizers that haunt just about every church he plants. They they were self-professed Christians, most of whom were probably ethnically Jewish, who would gladly claim Jesus to be their Messiah while denying the power of Jesus' life and death and resurrection to be fully sufficient for their salvation. And so, for these teachers, for these Judaizers, it was believing in Jesus plus keeping 
certain Old Testament rituals, especially circumcision, that would, ab- that would enable a person to be a true member of the covenant family, a true Christian. And Paul attacks this group with a list of carefully chosen and ironic names, beginning in verse 2. He tells the Philippians to watch out for the dogs, using a title for Jewish false teachers, which they themselves would typically apply to Gentiles. For first century Jews, the dogs which roamed about freely throughout the cities of the Roman Empire, they were very unclean animals who barely went a day in their life without eating or touching or sniffing some dead creature or unclean food that would never pass the inspection of Old Testament purity laws. And so to touch a dog was to become ritually unclean yourself most of the time. And so it became natural for many Jews to look down derisively at Gentiles as dogs, unclean people, cut off from God. And now Paul applies that title to them. Paul calls these same false teachers evil workers, workers of evil. A stark contrast to their own self-perspective as those who cared more about the good works of the law than anybody else. As mutilators of the flesh, Paul is taking a theological shot at their view of circumcision. The Judaizers believed that continual practice of old covenant circumcision was necessary in order to truly be God's covenant people. But as Paul makes a similar wordplay in Galatians chapter 5, he makes the point here that seeking to find righteousness by keeping the law, by practicing circumcision, a sign of the old covenant, only proves that one is truly cut off or severed from Christ. Without faith in Christ's work alone, a circumciser is merely a mutilator, is Paul's point. And all of this leads Paul to conclude in verse 3 that the true covenant people, the people of the true spiritual circumcision, are those who worship God by the Holy Spirit, according to the truth revealed in Jesus. Those whose confidence is placed in the person and in the work of Christ, and not in their fallen attempts at law-keeping. And to prove this, Paul gives us his own extensive resume of seven so-called boastful items. The first four have to do with privileges that Paul had because of his birth, circumcised on the eighth day as the law required, born an Israelite, not a Gentile who later converted to Judaism, but someone who was born into the covenant community, born of the prestigious tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, meaning that he could probably trace his Jewish lineage back pretty far. And the second group of three qualities demonstrate Paul's zealous commitment to his old faith. A Pharisee, the most conservative and strict Jewish group in their observance of the law, a zealous persecutor of the church, a man who went out of his way to defend what he thought was the true faith by hunting that down those who were opposed to it. Considered blameless according to the law, he says. 
And by saying this, Paul isn't claiming true inward sinlessness, but he's merely saying that throughout his career as a leading Pharisee, no one would have been able to see anything in him outwardly that they could convict him of according to the law. But then, in verses 7 and 8, Paul makes a claim that would have been startling for the Judaizers. These people, any one of them who would have loved to have his resume. And he says all those things. I count them as loss. And he presents it as a a downward spiral of loss to make the point. He starts in verse 7 with a basic statement of loss that could be taken from a financial ledger sheet. Those those things that I used to think were assets, I came to the point where I realized they belong in the opposite column. The liability column, the loss column. And he goes on in verse 8 to say it even more strongly. I now continually count all those things and more, not just as liabilities, but as obstacles, as damages to my higher goal of knowing Christ Jesus. In fact, I now consider those things to be revolting, to be repugnant to me. I now consider those things to be like a pile of animal manure, which is what the Greek word for rubbish means. Even that's a little tame. The 4th century church father, John Chrysostom, wrote a paraphrase of Paul from this section. And he speaks with Paul's voice and he writes, If then it was because of my good breeding and my zeal and my way of life, and I had all the things that belong to life, why, says Paul, did I let go those lofty things unless I found that those of Christ were greater and greater by far? And that's exactly what Paul did. When Jesus Christ appeared to Paul on his way to Damascus in Acts chapter 9, Paul came to the realization that his spiritual resume was worthless. And he exchanged it. He exchanged it for Jesus' resume of perfect righteousness, declared to be his by God's grace. And this is what Paul means in verse 9, to be found in him, in Christ, Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. Strong legal language of being declared righteous with an alien righteousness, as Martin Luther calls it. A righteousness which was outside of Paul because it was Jesus' righteousness, but declared to be Paul's very own by God's grace and received by faith. But it's not just legal language we find in these verses. Notice the way Paul conceives of justification. And this really gets to the point of how God is restoring what we lost in the garden. Paul says that I may be found in him. That I may be found in unity with Jesus. Salvation is not primarily a legal transaction. It is a person. It is becoming unified once again with God through the person and the work of God the Son and as a result becoming unified with His righteousness. Notice the verb to be found. 
It's passive. It's not active. Paul did not do the finding. Paul has been and always wants to be found by God to be in Jesus. Paul has lost everything and everything he has lost and continues to lose and continues to see more and more as loss results in him being truly found. As Jesus told his disciples in Matthew 16, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me, for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. He'll find it in me, because I will find him. But verse 9 could give us problems, and in fact it often does, in terms of understanding Paul's view of the law. So let's clear that up for a second. If, if the Old Testament law is an expression of God's very righteousness, His very holiness, and it is, then why does Paul in verse 9 contrast a righteousness which comes from God with a righteousness which comes from the law? He seems to distinguish the two. And I think the key to understanding this phrase comes with how Paul first qualifies this righteousness from the law by calling it a righteousness of my own. My own fleshly effort that comes from seeking to fulfill the law. In the words of Augustine, Paul can only have called it his own righteousness because although it was from the law, Paul used to think that he could fulfill it without the aid of grace that comes from Christ. In other words, Paul is distinguishing God's freely and graciously given righteousness and justification with mere human attempts to merit or earn righteousness by keeping the law in our own strength. That's what he's distinguishing. The law in itself truly does represent the holiness and righteousness of God to man. The law given to Moses, it was not a speakeasy. It's not a a false front. It was not a long con on the part of God to give us an arbitrary list of standards just high enough to watch us fail. The law is an authentic expression of God's holy nature. It is a verbal expression of His righteousness, above which there is no other. But the law does not impart the power to us to meet its own demands. It simply stands there as a majestic, beautiful mountain without parallel, but the most deadly mountain in the world over which no one has ever climbed without being dashed upon its many crags, all except one. And Paul is saying, I've stopped. I've stopped seeking to obtain righteousness by climbing the unclimbable mountain myself. In fact, I've given up climbing all the mountains I thought I could climb in order to look myself in the mirror and say, yeah, you've got what it takes. And instead, I rest in being united to the one who climbed it for me. But being unified to Christ means more than recovering what was lost only through justification. It also means being unified to a sanctifying Savior. A Savior who works His righteousness into our daily living. 
Being unified to the Savior means having the Savior's life and His death and resurrection reenacted through our lives. As verse 10 makes clear, to know Christ, to be unified to Him, is to share in the power of His resurrection. And the reference reference here is not just to our future physical resurrection, although it will end up there, But as Jesus' resurrection is reproduced in us by the Spirit, He changes our affections. He changes our motivations and our behavior as a result. In our struggles with sin, this truth can feel very hard to believe at times. It can be discouraging to find a lot less evidence of this within us than we would like. But He is changing us. He is changing us Because He promises to. He's changing what we love. He's changing our tastes. It's like I tell my daughter now. Someday, honey, I know it's hard to believe, but McDonald's is not always going to be your favorite restaurant. It just isn't. Take it by faith. It's true. But as verse 10 also says, being unified to Jesus in sanctification also means being united to his sufferings. They go together, resurrection and suffering, because they go together in Jesus, they go together in sanctification. Because suffering is so often an instrument God chooses for us in our sanctification. A couple of years ago, Aubrey had skinned her knee on the sidewalk in front of our apartment. She was already crying. She was already crying, of course. And I brought her into the bathroom to clean up her knees with a wash rag. And she began screaming even before I touched her knees, thinking that I was only going to hurt her more. She cried as I dabbed her scrapes with a cold rag. And then suddenly she stops and she starts laughing at herself and she goes... That doesn't hurt. Daddy, you should be a doctor when you grow up. Because the expectation is that doctors don't cause pain, they take it away. Which is ultimately true. But not always in the short term. God's daily transformation of us is not like the show Extreme Makeover Home Edition where we get sent off on kind of a wonderful week of vacation to some resort while God remakes a wonderful home for us in our blissful absence. Remember Paul, he's writing these verses from a Roman prison and it wasn't his first imprisonment and it wouldn't be his last. In verse 8, Paul has both counted as loss all things. But you know what? He's also suffered the loss of all things. And this tells us right here that we can never reduce Christianity down to just counting all things as loss. But part of the Christian life is actually suffering the loss of all kinds of things for the sake of finding more and more sufficiency in our unity with Christ. Again and again, my experience 
and yours, as I've heard so many times from many of you, often through tears, has been one of proving the sufficiency of Jesus precisely by having other anchors and other desires and other hopes and dreams and other sources of confidence removed. And as God brings us to the place of not just labeling our losses, but actually suffering and feeling our losses, we can know that we're following in the footsteps of Paul. And much more significantly, we are experiencing the reenactment of Jesus' sufferings in our life. This is part of what it means to be in union with Him. And ultimately, it's for our greatest good. Although Jesus first gives himself to his people in justification and continually through sanctification, it's also our union with Christ that is central to Paul's view of glorification. Glorification is not primarily about what we will be free from having to suffer in this life, although we will be free of it. Nor is it primarily even about the environmental changes that will take place around us in the new heavens and earth, although although there will be a lot of those to rejoice in. But finite blessings in a perfect world are still finite. As with justification and sanctification, the basis for all that we're going to enjoy in glorification is our union with an infinite Jesus. It's the crux of it all. It's the center of it all. As Paul has already said in the first chapter of this letter, to die is to be present with Christ. But it's clear in this passage that to be resurrected, to be glorified, is to be in union with Christ to an even fuller extent. It's the presence of Jesus that will make the absence of suffering a reality. It's our union with Christ that will make the joys of being reunited with loved ones a source of happiness that has no end. All of the future joys waiting for us in glorification find their source and their end in Christ. And this is why Paul can say in verses 8 and 10 that if you boil down his number one goal that stands above all else, it's to be found in knowing Christ Jesus. In glorification, we will come to the ultimate goal upon which our whole lives have been spent the full physical and mental and emotional and relational attaining of Christ, a new beginning to a relationship that goes on for eternity. Verses 12 to 16 end on a very practical note. We see here a great example of living out the truths of the previous verses of learning to lose in order to gain. Paul applies the truths of our union with Christ and justification and sanctification and glorification, and he applies them to letting go of our perfectionism. The Greek verb for having become perfect in verse 12, it's the same verb that Jesus uses from the cross when he says, it is finished. Paul is saying, I'm not finished yet. God's mission to bring me to full sanctification, it's it's not finished yet. And we see the same word behind the word mature in verse 15 as well. That those who are mature should have a right view of themselves. 
not a, not a false humility kind of view, but a true estimation of their weaknesses and imperfections and an honesty about them. And this should be telling us something. That those of us who feel the need to be their own chief propagandist, who spend their time convincing others of how little sin they've had lately, of how little fault they've had in creating a given conflict, these are typically not the mature ones. Because that's not Paul. Those who need to be walking billboards who are advertising their own maturity or the maturity and the successes of their children all the time, they're not doing what Paul is doing in this passage. But on the other side of the spectrum, neither are those who who morosely beat themselves over the head. Those who sing the loudest and most melancholy laments over their own depravity. The, oh, you wouldn't believe what it takes to live with someone like me crowd. Paul isn't saying this here either. Paul has managed to hold and walk the tension between being a perfectionist who needs to maintain his own reputation above all else on one side and being a grief-stricken self-flagellator who seeks to sell his own autobiography as a Greek tragedy to anybody who will listen on this side. He's he's on neither side. And if we were able to ask Paul, how do you do this? I think he would just smile. I think he would just smile at us and he'd say, because I've been united to Christ. I'm in Christ. I don't have anything I need to prove to anybody. In fact, I don't have anything that I need to prove to myself. Why? Because my incredible resume, my incredible accomplishments speak for themselves? I've already told you what I think about my resume. And remember, it's not very flattering. And do you think I could now find confidence in a new resume? If my old list of accomplishments before Christ wasn't enough, do you think that now my new list of all the churches I planted and all the people I preached the gospel to, do you think that this is now going to be sufficient? If I don't rely on my pre-conversion resume, do you now think I trumpet my post-conversion one? No, I don't. Because none of it proves anything about me. It only speaks to the reality of Him. It speaks to the reality of Him in my life. The reality of my union with Him. That's what it's all about. Sometimes it would be kind of goofy what we do as Christian families. It would be goofy what we do as burgers at home. We can come every week to hear again and again how Jesus has freed us from meriting favor with God by keeping His law, the highest standards that there are, but then we can substitute much lesser standards of our own. Self-made laws, self-made standards, school grades, academic achievements, athletic achievements, salary amounts, 
Diet and weight loss maintenance, dress sizes, Bible knowledge, perfect parenting, whatever that is. Being witty and popular, whatever it might be, we can substitute it all for His law and still beat ourselves over the head for not meeting these infinitely inferior standards. And Paul says, stop. Just stop. Whatever you have attained to, count it all loss. Whatever you hope to attain to, count it all loss as a way of measuring your self-worth. Forget the mistakes and the sins behind you and press on towards sanctification. Not for a more beautiful resume, but because Jesus has already made you His own. And He is our great gain. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord Jesus, we thank You. You have united us to Yourself, even as You say in John chapter 15, You are the vine and we are the branches. We've been united to You. Because we are in you, we have fellowship with you. And we have fellowship with your Father. And we have fellowship with the Spirit. And we don't need to look anywhere else. We don't need to look anywhere else to find righteousness. And we don't need to look anywhere else to find a sense of self-worth and meaning. Sufficiency or enoughness. We have our sufficiency in you. And it's a sufficiency no one can take. No one could give it but you, and no one can take it because you promise you never will. We thank you that that is true. We ask that this week we would live in light of being unified to you, wearing your righteousness, but wearing the worth that you have given to us by your grace, by dying for us and rising again for us and uniting us to you that be sufficient for each of us this week as we walk in your gospel. We ask these things in your name. Amen.